Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke to Dr. Seth Bromogen, a parasitologist, about Naglaria fowleri, a protist commonly known as the brain-eating amoeba. We covered a lot from natural history to ecology and the pathogenicity of the rare but tragic infection that this organism can cause in humans. I just want to add that there are some great resources online that cover how to prevent this infection and why it's important to bring awareness of nigloriasis to medical professionals so that these cases get diagnosed as quickly as possible. If you want to learn more, visit amoeba-season.com. For more information about microbes or the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy! Welcome to the podcast. Today, I have Dr. Seth Bromogen, who is currently an assistant professor at Kentucky Wesleyan College. Hi, Seth. Hey, Julia. Um, how's it going? <laughs> um, uh, it's, 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 it's going pretty well. You know, I'm in my office on a Saturday, so that's always a positive, right? That it is, I suppose. Um, so <laughs> before we start, um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your scientific background and what you do. All right. Yeah, I did my PhD at Rutgers uh, University up in New Jersey, where I studied parasite ecology um, and, and evolution. So I did my research primarily on uh, monogenian parasites that are parasites of, of fish. Uh, they're, they're flatworms, so they don't really qualify for this, for this podcast, but I also did a, a research project on the, the benefits and disadvantages of sexual reproduction in, uh, the protus paramecium multimicronucleatum. And so that was all sort of tied together in my, my dissertation studying, you know, parasite ecology and, and the evolution of potentially the evolution of sex. Uh, and hopefully, you know, that, that kind of research is going to continue and, and evolve going forward. That's really interesting. And maybe in the future, you can come back and talk about paramecium. Maybe. <laughs> Before we continue, I just want to say that this is the first episode. And so you're going to set the tone for this entire podcast. So no pressure. None at all. You know, I'm a trendsetter. Uh, I'm very cool. So you are very cool. Kids are saying it. Great. So which microbe are you going to talk about today? Uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about Nigleria fowleri, uh, more commonly known as the brain eating amoeba. Well, I've heard a lot about this amoeba in news articles and weird YouTube videos. So I'm really excited to talk mm -hmm. about it. It's, it's yeah. sort of really, really uh, 
sensationalized every time you hear about a case it's this rare thing and it's like a sudden death and it's almost like it's it's kind of unexplainable until you look post-mortem and for some reason that mortifies and excites the populace uh, or the new, news the news cycle and that's a good place to start because i was doing some research on this and so i'm assuming there's like millions of these nagleria cells on the planet And when I was reading about it, I read that there's only like zero to eight infections in humans each year. Mm -hmm. So I'm also really excited. I'm excited to talk about the whole brain eating side of it. And I'm also excited to talk about what this amoeba does when it's not eating brains. Yeah. um, (laughs) And so this is, this is the, this is something that I, I did. I wanted to get into when we were, well, you know, while we're talking about it is, you know, as part of the 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 media's fascination, whenever a, a case of this protist infection happens, it's not really a it, it's more facultative, it, meaning that it doesn't really want to to be an infectious disease. It completes its life cycle completely outside of, of humans. And in fact, if you are uh, if it infects a human and does start growing there, it's a dead end. Like those, any any individuals that are infecting a human are doomed. They're not. Their line is going to end because there's no mechanism for it to get out and then spread and then grow again. So it's pretty bad for the parasite too. And calling them a parasite is probably a misnomer. So, so that's all really interesting, and I want to know more about the life cycle. But before we okay. talk about its life cycle, can you explain what this organism is? Because I know it's called the brain-eating amoeba, but is it actually an amoeba? Where does it fall in the tree of life? Yeah, so yeah, it does. It does fall into uh, the amoeba group. They have a few sort of, uh, I think they're mostly defined by their uh, movement, right? So they, they move in sort of like this this tractor uh, tractor wheel motion where they're sort of rolling their membranes around their body and pushing themselves forward mm-hmm. and their shape which can be kind of amorphous and the the way that they are eating their prey by like engulfing it and surrounding it and internalizing that uh, and their prey is mostly fungi and bacteria and so do you know how big this cell is like are they like or what they look like and if i was Looking through a water sample and I found one in my microscope, what would I be seeing? In order to sort of describe what it looks like, you have to know that there are three different potential stages to their life cycle. And and so the cyst does does the job of if if environmental conditions are particularly bad, then uh, it protects the cell from those environmental conditions. For Nigleria fowleri specifically, it doesn't do a good job of preventing desiccation, meaning drying out. But it does do a good job of keeping them alive and going during colder temperatures. So like if they need to overwinter in the soil or something like that, as long as they don't completely freeze, they can survive some pretty cold temperatures. Then the other stage you might see it in, in its life cycle, and this is the sort of, I'll, I'll just sort of say the, the living stage of, of, mm-hmm. this, of this organism. It's the uh, trophozoite. Or some people pronounce tra- trophozoite. Pronunciation is not my strong suit. It's also not something that I particularly care for that much because I feel like it's it's all about your accent and where you grew up. And anyway, uh, <laughs> I won't dig. We're not a grammar podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the first episode, so 
theoretically <laughs> this podcast yeah theoretically this could be any any kind of podcast we don't know yet um, so anyway yeah so the the, the trophozoite stage is the stage that you might more if you were if you were to know what an amoeba was and know what a generally an amoeba looks like this is what you would think of this is the one that that moves with that tractor motion i was talking about earlier that's sort of amorphous that can sort of shift its shape and then send out little uh, parts of its body to engulf bacteria or fungi and that is also the infective stage right so if it's that particular one that would uh if you were to get it in in you it causes the the the, the infection okay and then unlike a lot of other amoebas this one actually has a flagellate stage so it, it, it has little bit tails that it can use to propel itself around so it it only grows these under very specific conditions so if the environmental conditions are or, or nutritional conditions in an area are particularly bad they might shift into this stage and so they can be a little bit more mobile and then get to a new location to feed. Might be more food, uh, more options, or better environmental conditions uh, without having to switch to the, the cyst stage. And as far as we know, they don't feed in that flagella stage. And the flagella stages are not infective at all. Okay. Where is this all occurring? Where, where are these amoebas found? They're everywhere. So they're on uh, every continent except antarctica okay uh which i mean it makes sense they they like they prefer they're thermophilic is the word they they prefer warm environments warm water mm -hmm. they are in mostly in water unless they're in the cyst stage in which you can find them in soil and stuff like that but they need water like i mentioned earlier they can desiccate they can dry out really quickly so the, the trophozoite stage if it's if it's out of water for any period of time it's almost immediately dead Okay. Um, so they require water. They prefer warm water. And when I say warm water, 25 to 35 degrees Celsius okay. is, is sort of where they're, they're kind of happy, but they peak at growth at around 47 degrees or 46 oh, wow. degrees Celsius. Yeah. That's hot. And so, so that they can survive. And just for, you know, listeners who aren't metric, that's 115 degrees Fahrenheit, wow. which is quite a bit higher than any kind of fever that the, the human body can get can get to without killing it. Um, so they actually grow really, really well at 115 degrees, and then they can survive for a couple of hours up to 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. 150 degrees. That's, yeah. that's really hot for an amoeba, like for something without a cell wall that's just yeah, kind of yeah. like a blob of cytoplasm. That's really hot. Like, exactly. <laughs> Because 25 Celsius is room temperature, right? So they're basically living at room temperature and above. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and that's what they prefer. And then in, in colder environments, the trophozoite can, can die really, really easily. But the, the cysts are more resilient to colder temperatures. They have a pretty, pretty high temperature range. So you're going to find them in warm weather environments or uh, in places that, that are warm during at least summer months. Like they can survive in that cyst stage over, over winter. Uh, and then come back out as trophozoites and then continue their life cycle. You will also, you'll so you'll find them in ponds that are relatively warm. You'll find them in hot springs. You can find them in, uh, they're actually really common in the uh, the cooling. So um, 
energy producing plants like inter, uh, power plants have cooling uh, systems that produce that, that run water over their heated coils and then flush that out uh and it's and it's not like toxic water or anything like this it's water that's just been used to cool like wires and then that is dumped out into stream or into streams or into into water bodies and they actually flourish in these dumps because it's it's warm water that's being dumped out into the natural uh, environment and then they are like attracted to this warmer area so they grow in that and and, and do really well uh, in those too huh that's fascinating this might not be the place for it and it's just sort of like my 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 chaotic uh, organization in my head but <laughs> two of the uh, two of the cases that are pretty prominent uh, so it, they can survive in if, if tap water isn't chlorinated properly, they can survive in that. Yikes. Yeah. And so two cases of Nigleria infection came from the use of a neti pot. So I read this yesterday when I was yeah. looking this up. And like part of the goal of this was to be like, we have nothing to fear. This is so rare. And like it it is very rare. And I think we'll we'll talk about how rare yeah. and unlikely it is to infect yeah, a human. So but, but when I read this, I used those like not a neti pot, but I use that thing you squeeze up your nose to clear your sinuses. And I always well, I usually fill it with boiled tap water, but now I'm like, well, I mean, I guess 212 degrees Fahrenheit's hotter than 115, but I don't know. <laughs> I do want to establish that they aren't really resistant to chlorination. So as long as, you know, your government facilities or water treatment plants are doing their job, you should be fine. But, and getting back to uh, just how rare it is. So it it was first described as an infectious agent in 1965 in Australia, actually. And since then, worldwide, there have been about 450 cases total. Okay. And in the United States, it's at about 150, I think. Okay. Um, or 160 at the at the moment since 1965. Mm-hmm. Again, total. However, it is around 97% mortality. So if you do get it, you are likely going to die. So why is the mortality so high? Is it because there's no treatment? Is it because people don't realize this is what they have when they're having symptoms? Why is it so deadly? So it's, it is it is more the latter because okay. there are treatments that do work. It's just that di- it is so rare as a diagnosis and the, it's a vague presentation, okay. right? So it takes about a week from the time you're infected to death. Um, and over the first few days, there may be no symptoms at all. Uh, and it's kind of, I was actually thinking about this just before we started and I was about to look for, for papers for it, but you know, I was getting antsy anyway. Um, (laughs) so, uh, it sort of seems to track basically like exponential population growth. Okay. Right. So uh, for for those listening who might not know, it's just sort of like you start with a uh, a small number and then that population doubles and then that population doubles and that population doubles. And then you end up with a relatively uh, gentle slope at first and then a rapid increase in population size. And so it kind of, in my mind, tracks with that kind of line of, of growth in that 
you know, the first few days you don't have that many, and then they're hitting this extremely nutrient-rich source, and then they start growing incredibly rapidly, and then you start feeling having headaches one day, you might be in a coma the next day and then dead the next day. So you're saying the population is actually growing. It's not just one amoeba is like chewing through a brain. It's like yeah. one amoeba um, gets in and it and it for at that reproduces. time, yeah, it's able to reproduce. Okay, that's really interesting and alarming. So <laughs> and so, how does one become infected? It starts with you know you you're you're in a warm water, some sort of a warm water source, and either you're you're playing around and you're playing around in that water, you're jumping in, you're splashing, all that stuff. And if the trophozoites are present in that system and you get it splashed up your nose, and it has to be kind of a, this is again, uh, it's not uncommon, the, the, the actual organism itself. It's not uncommon around the world. Oh, uh, my lights went out. Uh, I'm around... <laughs> I've got an L-shaped office, and the light sensor is over there. Oh, I thought you were, it was like a clap-on situation. No, I'm just going to, like, reach over and wave. <laughs> That's funny. Um, anyway, so you're going swimming in a, in a warm water place, and then water has to be forcefully pushed up, up your nose. It can't just sort of gently be washing over your nostrils. Your body has sort of means to sort of keep water. You, you, you naturally sort of keep water from going back up there while you're swimming, uh, and, you know, if it's forced up there and it comes in close contact with the nasal mucosa, a, a uh, sort of a, a nice moist spot. Well, I won't say moist. A nice sort of, uh, I know that that triggers some people. But, uh, <laughs> well, I'm going to keep that in now because that's funny. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to say moist again then. Yeah, that's fine. You could say <laughs> so moist. You could say, this is a podcast where you can say moist. Okay, good. We will... Uh, that's that's established now. First mm-hmm. episode. Thank you. <laughs> moist is okay. Anyway, so this <laughs> this lining is is good. It's moist. It's great for this amoeba. So it it is naturally sort of attracted to that area, and uh, it can make its way through the nasal mucosa. And if it finds the uh, connection to the olfactory nerve, which is the nerve that's responsible for sensing smells up through your nose, then it really, really loves the the taste of that. Our brains are super nutritious. Our nerves are super nutritious. Um, lots of fats, lots of energy for them. So they get on that olfactory nerve and start munching away, and it gives them all everything they need to start reproducing um, asexually. So they clone themselves. And so they are eating and munching away and growing along that olfactory nerve. And then they and eventually... They get to the brain, and then that's the mother load, and then they start growing like crazy. Okay. And so before your lights went out, you mm-hmm. were saying that Naglaria cells, they're not rare in nature. There's not a small chance you might encounter one of these in a water sample. It's just more so that the combination of circumstances that you'd have yes. to encounter in order to be infected with one is very unlikely and relies yeah. on a bunch of things lining up in a certain way mm-hmm. so that's and reassuring like, and, and so yeah when i when i say that they are they're common i'm, I'm more talking about they are prevalent they're they're yeah. really sort of they're out there but they are also relatively low density in those locations okay as well you yep. might find them if you get enough 
water, a big enough water sample, but they're also not going to be super common. Now in the, uh, the locations that I was talking about, like the, uh, the cooling waters from, from energy plants and like hot springs, you might find them at levels that are real relatively high because they really like those warm temperatures. And- okay. So I guess my, what I'm taking away from that is that in just a given natural scenario, they're able to live, but maybe not thrive and bloom. They're not mm-hmm. living under the most optimal conditions, but there have been some conditions that have, I guess, artificially been put in nature almost that yeah. Artificial and naturally. The hot springs are a a natural one. Yeah. And so there's some conditions where it's optimal for them to grow and they will reach high numbers in those locations. There are only two countries in the world that have like standards for how safe water can be for, for specifically for Nigleria. And part of the problem is that Nigleria is a genus, meaning it is a, a higher like slightly higher organization of life than species. And there are a lot of different species of Nigleria out there. None of which other than Nigleria fowleri can infect humans. Um, Even in, in laboratory conditions, there are two species that have been uh, experimentally put into rats, into, into other animals. So of the like 40 odd Nigleria species that exist out there, two of them are infective to rats at least, but only one of them that we know of is infective to humans. The problem with Nigleria is that the only way to tell them apart species to species is uh, genetically. <laughs> they are morphologically identical and you can't just sort of send a lot of people out to test the water to see like, uh, it's an expensive process to see if this specific species of Nigleria is present in these water systems. So anyway, back to what I was I was actually saying and sort of giving that context in this, because there are only two countries that have standards for how many Nigleria can be in a water body before it's declared safe. France and Australia. Okay. So France has, I think it's up to 100 Nigleria per liter of water. So if you were to get a liter of water and then filter it out and count how many Nigleria of whatever species you found in there, if you have less than 100, they say that water is safe to swim in. Australia, though, is a much more strict policy in that if you take a liter of water and find a single Nigleria, Mm. it is marked unsafe. So two very different mechanisms for monitoring the presence of this thing. And I think it's just sort of falls into two different uh, mindsets about one, the the rarity of infection and the severity of infection. Like which one are you putting more weight on? Yeah, Um, no, that makes makes sense because the France rules seem like they're hoping the odds are in your favor. Like there's a hundred, but maybe it's okay that there's a hundred in their conceiving of this rule because there's a less than 1% chance of it infecting you if you encounter it. So maybe maybe that's why. That's interesting. I watched a documentary about water in France and they do have a lot of really well-planned out rules around water. So I guess that makes sense why France would have standards for this. And then yeah. I'm sure Australia has to make standards for a lot of scary organisms. So they're mm-hmm. probably used I, to it. I mean, 
On the list of things that can kill you in Australia, this is probably pretty low on the list. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Kind of on this tangent, do you think that instance of infection is underreported? That is something that I kind of wanted to get into, and and I have something that's sort of tangentially related to that that I want to get into. Okay. um, That we've already talked about a little bit, but um, not not in the podcast. We've talked about outside the podcast a little bit. Uh, but I think so. Cause if you think about like, so where I grew up, I grew up in, in Eastern Kentucky uh-huh. and like a general way of life is like not admitting anything is wrong with you and not going to the doctor because, Oh, it's just this thing. It's just that thing. And this, this infection starts as a headache. Uh, and then within a couple days ends in death. But yeah, I, I imagine like a, the, a number of people that grew up in my area and other areas, like I think it's just sort of a general Midwest thing too of like, maybe it hurts, but I don't need to go to the doctor. That's, that's don't, don't make a fuss over it. So I wonder if it's happened relatively frequently. However, getting a diagnosis prior to death is relatively rare, but I feel like they do a good job post-mortem diagnosing these okay. particular things because- once you know it started as a headache, went to a coma, went to death, you have a very good idea of, all right, so it was some kind of meningocephalitis, <laughs> some kind of infection of the brain, uh, and we need to see what what the progression of that was. And then they can, it's very easy to diagnose and just take a section in, in the cerebrospinal fluid and see if there are trophozoites of this present. Okay, so that makes sense. So so like in that way, it probably isn't super underreported. Maybe throughout yeah. history, it's been underreported. Yeah, but like, yeah. And so that's that's the thing I wanted, we, wanted, oh. uh, we talked about earlier, and I okay. wanted to talk about more. Okay. Like before we knew that this was an infectious agent, this has to be kind of a, a terrifying thing throughout history, right? People would have just sort of keeled over randomly, it would have seemed at the time. Except I would argue that throughout history, so many things were inexplicably killing people that like, who knows what. Including doctors. Yeah, that's true. That's true. One question I had before when you were talking about the different species within the Neglaria genus is if they're morphologically so similar, the ones that are infectious and the ones that aren't, do we know what exactly makes them infectious? Is it just like a handful of genes? What is it? All right. So we don't know specifically what makes them uh, so different from the others in their genus. <laughs> we don't know specifically what makes them different, but we do know that there are around 200 to 300 genes that are specific to Nigleria fowleri okay. that are not present in the other sort of non-parasitic genera presumably those 300 or so genes i'm sure we don't know what all of them do because we haven't sequenced everything and we don't know what every gene encodes but presumably a bunch of those genes encode functions related to virulence and infection Mm -hmm. okay i imagine sure and it's also it's something it's 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 kind of funny because it sort of falls in the in a line of not sort of dangerous enough and sort of sudden and unique enough to prop up all these these news stories whenever it does actually happen but not common enough to sort of demand funding sure you know to to investigate these things and in what are going to be would be really expensive 
experiments and, and, and analyses and observations and all that stuff. So that's kinda... something I think we can both understand is yeah. people not wanting to fund things that we think are super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, pretty much everything I do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think you said 97 or 99 percent of these infections are fatal mm-hmm. but that means that and you said there's like what 450 cases so that means yeah. that you know four to 12 people haven't died from it do we know why those people haven't died were they treated in time yeah so um generally they are so there is a treatment there is an effective treatment and the, the key is catching it okay right so it's sort of like generally a confluence of events has to happen for them to catch it early enough Mm -hmm. in order to uh, a few of the cases where they caught it early enough people were actually getting tested for something else okay Uh, it was just coincidence or they were already in the hospital and then started developing symptoms and then mentioned oh you know i did go swimming last week in this you know pond in the middle of my cow field Okay. So I guess that's actually kind of luck because I was going to say in a lot of ways, you know, like maybe if doctors are more informed of this, they'll diagnose it more. But I guess if it's mostly a headache until it gets really bad, they're not Mm going to be looking at everyone with a headache, cerebrospinal fluid. That's a terrible test to have done from what I've heard. But yeah, there is an effective therapy for it. Amphotericin B. Okay. Uh, is the drug that they use. And is that, what is that, like an anti-what? It, it has anti-amoeboid properties. Okay. Uh, so it's a general amoeba drug. Got so, it. Yeah. Um, if they get that to them early enough, it's pretty effective. But again, hardly ever early enough. Because by the time the, the headaches are really going, um, it's probably too late. There are actually two other brain-eating amoebas Okay. Uh, don't don't get the credit. Okay. <laughs> because each of them has only ever had one documented case. Interesting. What yeah. what are they? Uh Sapinia diploidea. And this is not a name for a uh for an audio medium. Paravolcomphia <laughs> uh, francinae. So I study protists. And Mm -hmm. I have never heard of either of those things. (laughs) So thank you. I didn't either until I was started like, uh, you know, trying to refresh myself on Nigleria before before this this interview. But then like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I've never heard of these before. Did those have a similar mechanism for infecting? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, it's pretty much the, okay. the same pathway. They bu- So it's the, those three species, Nigleria, Fowleri, and those two, which I will not try to say again. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that, that cause the uh, primary amoebic meningocephalitis, or PAM for short. Okay. P-A-M. Uh, Feel free to cut this part out because it is sad and I know you don't want it to be depressing. No, it's okay. Most of the infections are people under the age of 30. Oh, that's Because really they're sad. the ones that are more likely to be out sort of engaging in these kind of activities. And a lot of the infections are young adults, children, like 12, 13, 8, young, young people. And I don't think it's anything to do with the progression of the disease itself but rather that they're just more likely to be out in these locations playing and jumping around and being. That makes sense. Being kids. No, that's really sad. And that makes sense. It is. 
Well, that all is good information. I was just a little more on what these organisms do in the environment because their primary role or function isn't to eat human brains, right? So as you mentioned before, they can ingest bacteria and fungi and I'm assuming like algae and stuff like that. So they're consumers. So I guess that's what they do. Does anything else eat them? What else are they doing? How else are they incorporated into an aquatic ecosystem? Do you know? They are sort of a, a general part of of any ecosystem, right? If if there's something like when, when we're getting that small, it's generally like, can you fit inside my mouth? Then I will eat you. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so anything with a, a mouth that can fit them will probably eat them. And that goes for for their eating style too. Like anything that they can engulf, then they will they will eat, including like bacteria and fungi is usually what they go after them. Well, and it sounds like these have evolved and persisted for millions to billions of years. So whatever they're doing is working. Exactly. I mean, this probably isn't the place for it, but I always always get kind of just a little bit annoyed when people talk about, you know... um, higher and lower evolved organisms and well, it just sort of me too. triggers and me, me there too. for a second. And it triggers me too. And this could be the place for this. So please bring it okay. up. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> like the whole the whole thing of people like when, whenever you so people use that terminology of like, oh well, you know, we've got humans, mammals, whatever, the higher evolved organisms. Like, no, 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 no. Everything that is alive today is exactly as evolved as everything else. Yes. I, I I go on this rant weekly, and yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing we have to think about is these organisms that morphologically and even, like, functionally have remained simple yeah. or, quote-unquote, simple. Probably it's, better than us. Yeah. They've optimized more basic functions in a way that our ancestors could not, which is why they had to evolve complexity to survive. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. uh, And along, along those lines, I feel like just sort of the, the human centric nature of we are the top of the evolutionary tree has really set science back more than it's more than anything in like the last 150 years or so since sort of the, the theory of evolution has sort of taken hold and talking about that thinking of us as the top yeah. has really set things back because it wasn't until recently we sort of started thinking about other forms of, of sentience of other forms of like uh, advanced of, of, of communication between organisms of, you know, different behaviors. We're, we're thinking of things that like these could never actually be on, on our level. We're finding a lot more things that are kind of close to that. But sure, and like other things can perceive and move through their environment in ways that we can't understand that may be just as impressive or more impressive. Or things that aren't sentient are so well adapted to their environment and to changes that they face that I think they're more impressive than us anyway. Yeah, I mean, if you can survive on nothing but a few strips of DNA and a couple of proteins, then you're 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 pretty successful in my book well and what it you know 99.9999 percent of life on this earth that's more or less their strategy so i'm always telling people plants animals and fungi 
are three tiny little tips on the tree of eukaryotic or protist life. And then that's one third yeah. and of the tree of all the other microbes of there's that's not even including the bacteria or archaea domains yeah we're 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 nothing yeah we are nothing <laughs> well seth on that note <laughs> that's a great great note and on i think it Humans is a good i think we it, need to freaking check ourselves yeah i think it is a good note to end on so i was just gonna ask if people are listening to this podcast and they want to follow you and follow your work, where can they follow you or find you? At Seth underscore Brummagen. Um, I also have a website, Brummagen Parasitology. Cool. Uh, which doesn't have a ton on there, but hopefully as I as I develop a program a, a, a research program, it will it will grow. That sounds great. Thank you for talking to us. Or to us. Thank you, Thank you for to talking of, to me all today. All the people in your head and your cat. Thank you. <laughs> This was really no, thank good. You. Thanks for having me, Julia. It was a lot of fun. And if you ever want me back in, in this, you know, podcast thing, I'll, I'll do it. If it, you know. No, I definitely will. And yeah, this was fun. I also think it went really well. Although I'm worried about if the sound worked out. But when we're done, I'll listen to it and I'll yeah. let you know um, if we have to redo the whole thing. And you know what? If we have to redo the whole thing. I really enjoyed how candid Seth was about the place of humans in a web of life of billions of different organisms. I also think that flashy scientific information often gets sensationalized for the purposes of clickbait, and I think Seth did a great job at presenting factual information without exaggerating anything related to Naglaria, and the truth in itself produces a great story. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and transition and outro music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes or the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com store. Lastly, I just want to thank everyone who made it to the end of this first TLB episode for listening. I'm new to podcasting, so I apologize if the editing, sound quality, or my voice isn't perfect yet, but I do feel like I'm starting to get the hang of it, so please don't send me mean DMs. I'm talking to you, middle-aged men on Instagram. Thank you all, and have a great day. Bye.